save the best for last. It's a great saying. It's even better advice. I mean, who wants to finish a meal with their peas? It's why last night when I finished up our big chicken Caesar salad, I finished the salad and saved a little piece of baguette for last so I could kind of wipe the flavors off the plate and just finish with that scrumptious last taste. It's why we leave dessert till after the meal. But it's not just about food. It's about so many things in life. You can picture it in film and theater as well. You don't have a plot twist happen at the beginning of a movie. You save it for the end so that you finish on this great note. It's why when you go see a musical live, there's always that rousing musical number right at the end before the curtain is drawn. Saving the best for last is, well, just the best. Today, as we continue on and finish our series, Life Under the Sun, a a look at the book of Ecclesiastes, we're going to finish with the teachers, that the author's greatest thought saved for last. We're going to see that in spite of all the other advice, which is wonderful, there's this great summation to the book. There's just a great piece of advice that will speak to how we're to live in light of the mysteries of life. As we know, as we've gone through this book, the teacher has addressed so many different mysteries. Why some things seem like they're, they're there and they're real tangible things we can grab a hold of, but when we go to grab them, we find that there's really nothing to them at all. It's why we find out that sometimes as we live life and we chase after certain things, we only find ourselves coming back to the place we truly started from. This advice, though, is very different. This piece of wisdom that we will end on as we look at this book is a piece of of wisdom that is solid, it's good, it's true, and as we will see, it is the sweetest note that we could end on. If you would join me this week in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 9 to 14. And we read this. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. Let's pause there for just a moment. We have to remember that the teacher is one who had all the means in life. They had uh, resources that most of us could never dream of. They had all sorts of power and privilege to experience and chase after whatever they wanted to go after in order to, to find out what was life's meaning, what was its purpose, what would fulfill. And as we see, as we've gone through the book of Ecclesiastes, the teacher's now in his last days, and he writes with a reflection of all these things. And if we were to give the sum total of everything, we would see all the things that have failed. We'd see that art, money, sex, wine, power, fame, leadership, all of these things that seem so good ended up being meaningless. They were enigmas. They were things that were mysteries that when chased after didn't bring fulfillment. But here, as the author zooms out and takes a look at the teacher's teaching, they do say that because of this pursuit, there was wisdom that could be found that was written down, which was true and good. And so we are to receive it as that. 
Just as we would trust a doctor for medical advice or an experienced lawyer for legal advice, we can trust the teacher because of the life that they had led, because of the experiences that they had gone through, and hopefully then we don't have to go through. And so we can avoid some of the pains of the lessons the teacher learned because we learned them from the teacher. But the author continues on in verse 11 and 12, and he says, The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the bodies. So in verse 11, we see that the teacher's words of wisdom, words of wisdom that are given, are like a goad. Do you know what a goat is? Well, you probably don't because, well, why would you? It's an ancient tool that was used by uh, shepherds long, long ago. And a goat was a, a tool used to motivate sheep, so to speak. When a sheep was being stubborn or going astray from where it should go, the shepherd would take a stick that had a, a pokey end on the end, and he would poke the animal, sort of like a cattle prod, and this was designed to inflict a little bit of discomfort and pain, but really it was designed to keep the animal from harming itself. And so this wisdom, these lessons that we are given are for us, and they are given by the one true shepherd. Now, as we know from looking throughout Scripture, this depiction of a shepherd and sheep is really an illustration for God and his people. And so the one shepherd who is giving this wisdom and prompting us with a goad, the, these sayings of wisdom, is of course God. Yes, the teacher has recorded these things for us, but it's really God speaking through the teacher so that we might get the promptings we need. These goads are there for our benefit. And not only are they like goads, but well-driven nails, firmly holding things together, giving structure and, and giving boundaries to our lives. These things are good for us, even though they might be painful to hear. I don't know about you, but sometimes it can be a bit painful to receive wisdom from other people because it means I sometimes have to set aside my pride or, or things that I trusted in, but I know and trust that it is good and true. It's for my benefit because God wants what's best for me. And what we also see here as we continue on and look at verse 12 is that this wisdom isn't just for us to learn but it's for us to live. In verse 12, the author writes, Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. There's a whole lot of books in the world, and there's more written and published every single day, and that's just books. We've got magazines and blogs and podcasts and YouTube and instructional videos. There's so much information that comes uh, to us and for us to receive and we could spend our entire life reading and studying and watching videos where we could learn. The problem is all that ends up giving us is knowledge. Knowledge is what we know, but wisdom is what we do with that knowledge. It's the practical living out of 
the knowledge that we have and we do need. So the teacher here, what he's doing is he's poking us. He's saying, what you have learned, now also put it into practice. This is what you are supposed to live out. If we live life under the sun and there's all these mysteries, this is the answer. You want to live a wise life? You want to live a godly life? Well, do this. And that do this portion comes to us in verse 13 and 14. We read this. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Fear God and keep his commandments. That's the wisdom. If we live that out, we are implementing all this knowledge we are given for our good. The teacher tells us this is what gives us meaning and purpose. It's the duty of our lives. So let's break that down a little bit. What does it look like to fear God? What does it look like to keep his commands? And then ultimately, why do we do that? What, what does it mean for this to be the sum total of our lives? So what it means to fear God, first and foremost, is, is to revere God, to honor him for who he is, to worship God above everything else. I like the way Mark Driscoll puts it. He says, To fear the Lord is to consider God above everything and everyone else. To fear the Lord is to do what is right in God's eyes, even if it means that the outcome will likely not be in our best interest. So it's not about what we selfishly want for ourselves. It's about doing everything with the intention of focusing on what God wants and what honors and worships him. It's about fearing God above literally all else. Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And so we want to put this into practice. And we, again, we've seen this in the teacher's life. Uh, the, the teacher, it didn't matter that he chased after money and power, all the fame that he had in life. He realized as he aged that really the only thing that brought value and meaning to all of his existence was to honor and worship God above all else. And the reality is that is not just good advice because it's true, but it also spares us from harm. You see, if we fear God above everything else, he becomes our focus. He becomes where we go in everything we do. But if we don't fear God, we end up looking out and worshiping all sorts of things. We get torn in a thousand different directions because there's different voices in the world which tell us how we should live, what we should do with our time, what will bring us meaning. And it sort of pulls us apart in all sorts of different ways. Oswald Chambers once said, the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. When we don't worship God, we end up being torn, fearing and worshiping all sorts of other things instead of focusing on and worshiping the one true God who deserves all of our love and affection and who really has a good plan that will be worked out from that. 
So we fear God, but how do we fear God? Well, that's that second part of the statement. And we keep his commandments. So what does it mean? What does it look like to keep his commandments? Well, essentially, it's learning what God wants from us and just doing it. And, and how do we know how to do that, though? You know, there's so many questions. We, we, we look at life and there's so many choices before us and there, there are these competing voices. So what does it look like to keep his commands in light of all that? Well, I would encourage you to, in order to figure that out, that out is to ask yourself a series of questions. The first question is to ask yourself, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about a certain situation or about the posture and character you should have in the way you go about life? This is why it's so critical for us to study Scripture. We are, are told by God that His Word is the Bible. The Scriptures that we have are for our benefit in learning from Him, about Him, how to worship Him, and how to live out this life of following Him. And it's ultimately all for His glory, but we have to understand what He says to us in order to do that. So we have to become good students and learn and gain the knowledge and then live it out. We don't study the Bible because it's an end in and of itself, but it's a way that we grow closer to the God who gave it to us. The second question that we can ask ourselves is, what counsel can I get from the godly people in my life? If we want to keep the commandments that, that God has given us, we need to learn from other people. This is one of the benefits of Ecclesiastes and, and learning from the teacher and his story. But it's not just about someone who lived long ago as, as much as that has inspired and given us God's word and, and has helped us. We also have each other, those around us who God has placed into our lives to teach us from their experience, to walk alongside of us and help us see things that are in our blind spots. It's one of the reasons we talk about community groups and push people towards community groups because one of the best things, one of the, the best ways to live out our life of keeping God's commands is to live it out with other people and to have their in accountability and wisdom that will help shape how we live. The third question we can ask is, what can I or how can I best glorify God now in this moment? You know, sometimes we just face a situation and the reality is we don't have time to study the Bible in that moment, which again is why we should be doing it all the time to gain and learn that knowledge so we can put it into practice when the time comes. But sometimes we, we don't have time to study uh, the Bible in a moment to make a decision. Sometimes we don't have those counselors, those godly people around us who can help us in that moment. And so what we need to do when we face those situations is to ask ourselves, what would glorify God in this moment? What would bring him honor? What would uh, present an opportunity for me to share about him or praise him or just live in a way that is reflective of him? And then we put that into practice. Finally, we can ask ourselves, what does God want me to do? One of the great things about being a follower of Jesus is that we have the Holy Spirit that indwells within us. God lives within us, speaking to us, teaching us, shaping us. And so we can speak to him. We can talk to God and allow him to speak back to us. And then when we hear from God, 
We respond in action by doing what he would have us do. We do the things that would honor and worship him. Now, all this, of course, so begs the question, why should we do that? Why should I honor and worship God? Why should I keep the commands that he's given? Uh, Well, the writer goes on to say, because it is your duty, as well as we will see that he says that one day we will all face judgment for the actions, for, for how we lived our lives. But what does it mean for this to be our duty? He says, fear God, keep his commands, for this is the duty of all mankind. Now, most of us don't like that word duty. We don't like it being an obligation for us. We don't like being told how we're supposed to live. In fact, most of us really strongly push against things when we hear, this is what you're supposed to do. Well, we want to be in control. We want to be autonomous and in in power. And so we say, no, I'm going to push against that. But as followers of Jesus, we have to understand that there is something more going on. We had Jesus pay the penalty for our sin. He literally bought our lives, our freedom, our soul and spirit by his blood, by his sacrifice. And so we owe everything to him. I mean, God didn't just create us, but when we get ourselves into trouble, when we've sinned, when we've rebelled against him, we got ourselves into a place where we could not fix, and Jesus came to deal with all of that. And so now we have an obligation, but it's not even really an obligation, it's a privilege to get to worship him in response to what he has done. There is no greater way that we can live our lives than to follow Jesus and become more like him for the purpose of glorifying him. That should be our sole focus, our sole purpose in life. It really becomes our greatest calling. It supersedes what we do for work, what our role is within our family. It goes bigger than everything else. It becomes a part of all of those things. When we look at our workplace, when we look at our homes, when we look at our friend circles, we then see, okay, how can I worship God and glorify him in all of these places? And we see that this actually gives us a cohesive purpose to our being. And it's a response to the goodness and mercy of God. That response is to fear him, to worship and honor him. And truly, there is no thing that can give you a greater sense of fulfillment and accomplishment. We can never lose sight of the fact that we are loved by God, that we are bought with a price, but that he wants us to live out our life in response to that by obeying his command. But we see that in addition to this great response, that there is another line we read in verse 14. It says, For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Every single one of us at some point will have our bodies fail us. They will stop working and then we will go and stand before God and face judgment. Which means that every, every action that we have committed, every place where we have had a choice of, of choosing to worship God or something else will be put before him for his judgment. 
And when we think about that, when we reflect upon our lives, we know what we deserve, don't we? We deserve punishment. We deserve rejection from him. Even for those of us who who say, you know what, I'm a pretty good person. We know that at the end of the day, we have not been a perfect person. We have failed quite often and we have fallen short of what God's standard is as perfect and good and loving. It doesn't take long to ask ourselves a few questions like, have I ever told a lie? Have I ever lusted after someone else? Have I ever stolen anything, even one little thing? Have I ever focused on something over God? Well, surely we would all answer yes to all of those things, which would make us lying, adulterous, thieving, uh, people who worship ourselves and others over God. That's a problem. And it's because of this rebellion and these actions against God that we are deserving of his judgment and wrath. But there's good news. The good news is that while we are deserving of all of that, God in his infinite goodness, in his infinite love and mercy, chose to send his son Jesus. He chose as God to come in human form as fully God and fully man to deal with what we could not deal with. He came as fully man in order to live a perfect life like no other man or woman could. He came as fully God to take on God's own wrath to defeat sin and death, which only God could do. And he did that as a substitute for you and for me. God brings this good news. Jesus came and accomplished it all so that we could come into relationship with him for his glory's sake. Even though we don't deserve it, we get brought into his family and that brings him glory and he should be praised and honored for it. The good news of this message is that when we hear that one day God will judge everybody and he will call every deed into existence that happened before him for judgment, whether it's good or evil, we know that all that has been done wrong has been paid for if we surrender our lives to him. Because Jesus paid it all. We have nothing to fear. But I think there's also something within that statement that should motivate us. There's this thing that the, even the good things that we do will be called in front of God for judgment. Ecclesiastes tells us that God judges public and private, good and evil. And wouldn't it be such a good thing for us to enter in front of God's presence one day and be expecting judgment and hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Wouldn't it be wonderful to experience God's acknowledgement, not, not because we have done anything, not because we deserve any recognition from him, but because he sees his own son Jesus in and through and that we have brought him, even if in a little part, the glory, some of the glory that he deserves. Wouldn't it be such a wonderful day to be a part of that celebration of his glory that was brought about or shown a little bit 
by our lives, we can rest assured that we can experience that because of what Jesus has done. And so what I think we should be motivated to do is to worship him and keep his commandments in every way because of who he is and because of what we get to experience because of that. For those of us, though, who aren't sure what one day this judgment thing could mean, you think back on your life and you go, man, there have been places where I have worshipped things other than God. There are places where I have done wrong or I have intentionally gone against God. This, this isn't to be a threat, but I would like to give you the invitation, the, the good news that Jesus did die for you as well. He was strong enough, powerful enough, capable enough to take on the sin of the world. And he wants you to know that if you turn to him, if you fear him, if you worship God, if you surrender and confess the places where, where if you have gone against him, that he will forgive you, that he will receive you into his family, and that he will bring himself glory through your life. You can rest assured in those promises of God because of who he is and what he has done. This is the greatest news. This is why it's the sweet things that, the, that we save the best for last. The teacher is telling us to choose to fear God and to obey his commands so that we can bring meaning and purpose to our whole lives. So where do we go this week from here? How, how do we live this out? Well, the first thing we do is if there is an area of our life where we ha have built up something else that we worship above God, we have to work to dismantle that idol. We have to turn away from it. We have to set God, the Father, Jesus, the Son, the Holy Spirit above it so we experience and worship that above everything else. Together, we need to strive to keep his commandments, which means we have to dedicate ourselves to, to understanding God's word and living it out. It means that there's going to be situations that we face this week where we have to ask the questions of, of what does the Bible say I should do? What would, what would godly counsel tell me to do? What, what would honor and glorify God in this situation? We have to learn to ask ourselves those questions in every situation and then to act in the ways that we think would worship God. We need to invite the Holy Spirit, to be active in our lives. We need to surrender control of all these things to him to allow him to steer the ship of our lives so that we can accomplish the good purposes that he has planned for our lives. We need to work to practice the ways of Jesus and to participate in bringing God worship everywhere. Whether that's at our office or in our homes or in the conversations that we have as we go for a walk around the park, wherever it is, we need to fear God and keep his commandment in each and every one of those situations. And so this week, fear God, obey his commands, for this is the privilege of your life. Father, we thank you for 
who you are and God, that you are a God who is in control, that you are a God who is all-powerful, that you are bigger than everything that we face. God, we recognize that there's so many mysteries in the world and there's so many things that we have tried uh, to, to chase after to give us meaning and purpose. And there's so many things that have failed us. And Lord God, we, we turn to you recognizing that. We ask you for the forgiveness of those places where we have, have worshipped others and other things above you. Lord God, we surrender control to you. We ask you to be the focal point of our lives. Lord, we thank you for your forgiveness. Jesus, we thank you that you went to the cross to die in our place, that you defeated sin and death so that we could have a new life and victory in you so that one day we would get to experience the fullness of your glory by being in your presence for eternity. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you have chosen to live within us, to work in us and through us. And Holy Spirit, I would ask that we would have real sensitive hearts. As your people, would we be open to hearing from you in every moment of every day? Would we fear you and keep your commands? And would that bring you great glory and honor? Because Lord, that truly is our privilege. God, I thank you for your word as we have been able to finish this book. And God, as we look towards what we are going to be studying next, as we examine what it looks like to, to live out your great commands, God, I pray that we would be really sensitive to hearing your prompting, that we'd be excited about how we can worship you. And God, would you do a great work in and through the people of your church, of this church, Lord God, that we would be agents of bringing about your name and your glory in everywhere we go this week and in the days to come. God, we thank you for this great privilege and we pray it all in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.